0: Hey, I'm Mackenzie Fagan, and this is 112BK, coming to you from downtown Brooklyn. On the show today, she recorded TV news 24 hours a day for 35 years. Matt Wolf joins us to talk about his new documentary about Marion Stokes.
1: To some people, um, every single newspaper from the past 15 years is a value, and to other people, it's just trash.
0: And then the crew talks about one of Wolf's earlier films, Teenage, as we recollect our own tender years. Like any child of the 90s, I had a robust collection of movies recorded from the TV onto VHS tapes. There was Annie, complete with commercial breaks for McDonald's Happy Meals and Sunkissed Fruit Gummies, and the seasonal favorite Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. There was A League of Their Own and Fried Green Tomatoes, and to no one's surprise, I now date women. Marion Stokes also recorded TV onto VHS tapes, except she did it 24 hours a day on multiple channels for 35 years. When she passed away in 2012, she left behind over 70,000 VHS tapes containing many, many hours of footage. Filmmaker Matt Wolfe sent out to document this obsessive documenter in his new film, Recorder, The Marion Stokes Project, which will premiere at the Tribeca Film Festival later this month. Matt, welcome to Woman 2BK.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Um, What was the news event that started this, or why did Marion start recording in this fashion? I know in the film you talk about how at first it was because she liked Star Trek and maybe she missed an episode and wanted to catch up on it later. But what was the impulse that set her off on this trajectory of recording news all the time?
1: Well, it was really the Iranian hostage crisis in 1979. So many people and scholars consider this the birth of the 24-hour news cycle, but basically it was kind of a soap opera of television news about the hostage crisis and would the hostages come out and what political maneuvers were happening behind the scenes and conspiracies. And um, that's what really initiated the television show Nightline. And Nightline proved to be this big hit that could compete and stand up against you know, late night johnny carson etc and so um i think people started to recognize that there was an appetite for this kind of real-time news and marion saw that and um she recognized that news was becoming this kind of pervasive and persuasive medium and she wanted to do something about it to protect the truth
0: so many people across america are tuning in nightly why is marion recording
1: Um, i think she intuited that there was important information that was being lost and she didn't want anything to be lost. She thought in order to protect the truth and and to understand the bias and um, discrepancy in facts that was happening that early in the reporting of television news, that there needed to be a definitive and comprehensive record. And little, you know, little known to most people is that television stations didn't save all of their programs. They were discarding them in, into the trash can of history. Um, but fortunately, Marianne saved it. So it's a pretty unprecedented record of the news and, and how it was represented on media, but also things like television commercials and talk shows and local programs and PSAs, things that might seem marginal or small, but that Marion recognized there was historical value to as well.
0: So let's zoom out a little bit and maybe tell me a bit about Marion and why she cared so much about protecting the truth, as you say.
1: Well, Marion was born around the Great Depression. Um, She went through the foster care system and was passed from family to family. And when she kind of got older, she became a radical communist in the 1950s. Um, She was involved particularly in activism around Cuba and better understanding and sympathy for the Cuban Revolution. Um, And that's at the point where she had a child and she became divorced and was a single mother. During that time as an activist, I think she was surveilled by the FBI, like many communists of that period, and I think developed a a kind of nuanced, multidimensional kind of picture of politics and and the representation of politics in the media. So in the 1960s, she took a job um, producing a local television show called Input. And it was there where she would meet her future husband, John Stokes. And um, I think it was there where she really came to understand the effect of media to affect public opinion. So these were kind of consciousness raising sessions that she hosted. And um, I think that was a transformative experience that ultimately catalyzed the taping project.
0: As somebody who hosts a local TV show, I am very into the design of this show. <laughs> oh my input. God, it's so good, They're right? like up on like orange dioceses and they're, they're facing antagonists. It's
1: beautiful. Yeah, it's beautiful. They have these like elaborate wood stages and um, it just shows like the kind of intention behind this thing. And it was kind of countercultural in a way. They would have ex-prisoners next to Pete Seeger, next to a secretary and a nun. And it just represented this diverse uh, kind of range of the public and they had really dynamic and engrossing conversations. We
0: need more nuns on this show. Yeah, right. So we'll work on that. (laughs) Um, So you mentioned that she was a communist and she was being groomed as a leader of the Communist Party because she was African-American, because she was incredibly intelligent and outspoken. And so the FBI had a file on her. Do you think that the fact that she was surveilled had any impact in what she then saw as her own surveilling of the media?
1: I think she was more concerned about doing her project privately because of that. Oftentimes we think of archives as really being institutional um, or having institutions of power kind of you know, say, this This is important to collect and we're going to do it. And she did that privately, which is really rare. And I think part of the reason she did it privately and kind of insisted on her privacy is because she had seen abuses of power and she had been surveilled and that, that had an effect on her life.
0: So maybe we can show a clip from the movie. This is her secretary, I believe, who talks a little bit about who she was and what she was like. Great. Very mysterious and very private. Her husband, John, would come out and talk to me, and I would speak to Marion through the door. She would open the door maybe an inch and talk to me. I would say it was three or four months before I actually met her. We were getting close to finishing their place, when they said they would like me to start working for them, helping them do things. I was kind of shocked because, uh, you know, I never, (laughs) I guess, been with someone that had so much stuff. They had enormous amount of furniture and archives, magazines, books. She read about 11 newspapers a day, and I don't think she ever threw one out. Later in life, she became fantastically wealthy. Tell me a little bit about how she found herself able to just record TV 24 hours a day.
1: It's very unexpected. When I first heard about her story, I had no idea that she was fabulously wealthy and she lived in the kind of fanciest apartment building in Rittenhouse Square in Philadelphia. And Marion, beyond being savvy about politics and the news, was a very gifted investor. And she recognized trends in media and technology very early. And Beyond just understanding them, she acted on them. So when, when Apple released the Macintosh computer in 1984, she acted and she became an avid investor and collector of Apple products. And through that and other technology and real estate investments, she became a very wealthy woman. She had married a man who came from wealth, um, but her investments and her savvy in the marketplace kind of enhanced that.
0: And you just referred to her as a collector. So it wasn't just the VHS tapes, the 70,000 VHS tapes. She collected Apple products. She collected newspapers, magazines. She had apartments filled with things. And one of your subjects in the film talks about the difference in history's eyes between hoarders and collectors. Can you make that? Can you distinguish the difference between those for me?
1: Yeah, I really think it's... um Who decides what's valuable? To some people, um, every single newspaper from the past 15 years is a value, and to other people, it's just trash. During Marianne's lifetime, a lot of what she was doing was kind of cast away as hoarding or pathological, when in fact we now look at it and can recognize that there was insight behind it.
0: Do we know if she ever went back and watched the tapes that she recorded, or did she just save them for posterity?
1: Yeah, she wasn't analyzing, editorializing, or interpreting the news. She was just capturing it. Of course, as an individual, she had her own point of view and and kind of optics over the, the kind of mechanisms of news. But I think for her, it was more about creating a comprehensive and definitive archive so that people could use it in the future.
0: And worth mentioning that she started out as a librarian.
1: Exactly. So that
0: archival impulse is strong.
1: Yeah, she she had a career as a librarian, and then she took took it in, inside into the house. Mm-hmm.
0: And what happened after she passed away in 2012?
1: Well, as you can imagine, the task of kind of cleaning up this kind of project was overwhelming and the film in a lot of senses, is about Marion and her relationship with her son and it was a complex and often kind of troubled relationship but at the end of her life she asked him to kind of be the executor of her estate and to make sure her life's work wasn't in vain so Michael searched and searched for some home for these tapes they put the 70,000 tapes into uh, storage pods and there was part of them that thought oh you know these are just going to be thrown away but What happened is that they found the Internet Archive in San Francisco, which is a very unconventional library that agrees to digitize huge volumes and and corpuses of analog collections with media. And so those storage pods were shipped across the country from Philadelphia to San Francisco. How many
0: were there? Do you know?
1: I'm not sure how many pods, but you can imagine how many pods it takes to hold 70,000 VHS tapes. Right.
0: You create this kind of scaffolding against which her life plays out. So all of the major events from the late 70s up until her death are are featured, as well as recurring themes, such as violence by the police against black people. In some ways, it reminded me of Christian Markley's The Clock, except mm-hmm. instead of like every minute of the day, it was like every year.
1: Yeah, I wanted to create a kind of unconventional timeline. What I found going through the tapes is the fall of the Berlin Wall was maybe less interesting than the fall of Miss America's pageant stage. Neither are in the film, but it was the kind of marginal histories or the forgotten local news stories. Um, Things that people don't always think about or know about that were often the most interesting things that pointed back to Marianne. But I tried to treat well-known current events like 9-11 that all of us witnessed on television. I tried to show them through the guise of this archive in a new and unconventional way that makes you reconsider these experiences we've collectively had through television.
0: I mean, the 9-11 scene is stunning, if I may say. Thank you. Um, I don't know if you want to talk about it or if that's like a spoiler, but if you feel comfortable talking about it, I would love for people to know about it.
1: Sure. I mean, We show the minutes in which the news of 9-11 broke with four screens side by side. So you see in real time how each network started reporting the, the breaking news of 9-11. And what's disarming and uncanny is to see the the kind of inane or benign programming on news that was happening before it. It really shows you the flow of the 24-hour news cycle and how in real time all the news networks catch on like wildfire to something that's happening. I think for everybody, it puts them into a place where they remember the moment that they found out about that in real time and how we were all kind of viscerally connected through this moment and glued to the television.
0: Absolutely, and it's these four quadrants and the top left is CNN, which has it before anyone else. And it, exactly what you said, it puts you in the moment of, there was a time before I knew about 9-11, and all of a sudden, I knew about 9-11.
1: Yeah, and everything was different, especially in the media, everything was different from that point on. Yeah. I think there's other events like the Challenger, to some extent, the Iranian hostage crisis that people experienced through television, and it was a collective experience. I don't know if that happens as much today, Ho- hopefully nothing like 9-11, but th- there are just a few things that we all know through television or mm-hmm. JFK's assassination, obviously before our time. But
0: So much of the film is about who decides what's important, what makes it onto the news, how it's portrayed. Um, and about how we don't know what's important until afterwards often which is why it's important to cast this wide net and then we can go back through like I'm thinking of the moment where we see Kellyanne Conway a young Kellyanne Conway in the 90s on the news which at the time was like oh Kellyanne Conway now it's like Kellyanne Conway
1: yeah it's that's what's so unique about the archive is someone in the film says archives predict futures it's kind of like so often we look to the past to try to better understand today but in terms of archives, it's it's kind of impossible to know what from the past is going to be significant in the present or into the future. And that is that is the rationale that guides archivists to, to collect everything is you never know what's going to be important.
0: It seems as if your own experience as the director of this film mirrors a little bit the experience of a news executive in that you had to decide what of this archive was important enough to make it into the film. How do you think your own point of view impacted the narratives and the the micro narratives that you weave throughout this film.
1: Yeah, of course as I'm speeding through that footage as I mentioned 10 times pace like I'm I'm marking things that just appeal to me aesthetically, content wise and of course in various iterations of the film there was lots of stuff that was really interesting to me or or tapped into my preoccupations and and fascinations but I would have to stop myself and to think Marion's a very mysterious woman we need to figure out how this material points to her and how she points to this material so I really tried to sit in her her place and to try to think how a story might, appeal or affect her as a viewer, given what I knew about her, her interests in the mechanics of media in um, communism and, and the American government's relationship to it, into race and race politics, into technology and the emergence of new technology. These are things that were such big threads in her life. I tried to often choose stories that intersected with those subjects as well.
0: She does emerge as a very mysterious character, And I think I understand her motivations on a cerebral level, but there's this other storyline that I don't quite understand, which is that she didn't have a relationship with her son, Michael, as you mentioned, or her stepdaughters. And in fact, as she delved deeper and deeper into this recording project, she distanced herself from them. Do you have any insight into that? And also that she built a a sort of chosen family afterwards with her staff.
1: Mm -hmm. Obviously, this kind of project involves a certain amount of control, controlling an overwhelming cascade of information, trying to organize it, trying to make sense of it. You can't control human relationships. And Marion wasn't good at that. You could say she made certain sacrifices to pursue this project. And those sacrifices were really hurtful to people in her family and people around her. And it doesn't mean what she did was, of no, was not valuable or insightful, but it was at the expense of human relationships. And I think that's true of a lot of people who pursue work that's unprecedented. But I also think that this is a family story, and there's a lot of tragedy as well as triumph in it.
0: Do you think that the bonds that she forged with her staff, with her chauffeur, her nurse, and her secretary— Towards the end of her life, do you think that's because she had more control since they were working for her?
1: Yeah, totally. And I think, you know, um, when her husband died, um, Marion was alone. She had alienated a lot of her family. And this group of people provided a, a kind of support and camaraderie that she, she didn't have. But they also were a group of people who helped her reconnect and to forge a new relationship with her son at the end of her life. So it's a pretty unconventional family story. So how
0: long were you working on this film?
1: Ooh, I, I think I was working on this film four to five years. It's been a long haul. As you can imagine, like, you know, indexing that collection, digitizing the tapes, going through them, let alone doing all the production. It just, it's a process that unfolded over a long period of time.
0: Now you're on the other side of it. And what has changed about the way that you thought of this project? Did you go in thinking one thing and on the other side think something else?
1: I mean, I think for me... I went into the project because I was intrigued by what could be done with this archive, because kind of anything could be done with it. It's everything. As I started working on the film, I I was drawn more and more to the story about her relationship with her son and her family. And I recognized just how emotionally intense it is, but also how emotionally intense news is and what the experience of watching all of these horrific and, and historic things would be like and bearing witness to that. The film became much more emotionally intense than I would have anticipated, and it's actually been a few months since I've seen it. I won't see it until its world premiere in a, in a week and a half, but, um, you know, even the last time I watched it, I was really emotional watching the film, and, you know, it makes me recognize that's those are the kind of stories I'm drawn to. I like to traffic in big ideas, but I like to tell stories that make people f- feel things and that reflect on relationships that we all have.
0: So if people want to attend the world premiere, can they do that?
1: There are a limited amount of tickets left. I don't know for how long, but the film uh, is premiering at the Tribeca Film Festival, but it will surely be back in New York.
0: Excellent. Matt Wolf. thank you so much for joining us. The film is called Recorder, uh, and I hope that people catch it at Tribeca or other festivals, hopefully in theaters after that. Great. Thank you. I'm a big fan of Matt Wolf's other documentaries, including Wild Combination, about musician Arthur Russell, and Teenage, about, well, teenagers. Today, we're back with the crew to talk about those years we wish we could forget. We're welcoming back Shireen Bargi, who is a producer on 112BK, and Mira Al-Rahim, who edits our podcast Welcome back, you guys. Thanks for having us again. Thanks for having us. So, we just talked to Matt Wolf, who's a documentary filmmaker. He has this film, Recorder, the Marion Stokes Project, mm-hmm. that's at Tribeca. Um, and he has this other film called Teenage.
2: Did you guys like being teenagers? So, I think like every generation of teenagers are shaped by the socio political and economic events of the time. And I grew up in Iran at a time when the country was still. Very much traumatized by the eight year war that we fought with um, Iraq. This is a 1980-1988 war and also the trauma of the revolution that happened in 1979. So I feel like while I was a teenager I had to like figure out who I was while navigating all of these traumas including the traumas that were passed down on to me from my parents.
0: So being a teenager wasn't exactly like a happy-go-lucky experience. I mean,
2: I, you know, it like— It isn't for
0: anyone, probably, it, it, right? It probably
2: isn't for anyone. Like, I speak to my husband, who was a teenager during post-9-11, and, you know, like, the things that he tells me, you know, being a Muslim Iranian kid growing up in, in those circumstances is just, like, also really traumatizing. I mean, mm-hmm. I thought I had it bad, but I was like, ugh,
0: Mira, what about you? If you could go back and redo your teenage years, would you? Well,
3: just just a quick note, you really set the bar very high because I feel like all my teenage problems are really just extremely minimal <laughs> compared to like oh. living in a repressive theological regime. Uh, but that's just to say, no, I wouldn't do them again. I actually don't understand anybody who
0: idealizes childhood or teenagehood for that matter. Wait, um, but you okay, so I want to draw, for me there's a distinction between idealizing childhood mm-hmm. and idealizing teenagehood, but do you sort of see them as a continuum?
3: Uh, no, actually, no, I, I actually feel similarly to you. I do see them as being two distinct periods in one's life. Um, that said, I wouldn't go back. I had a particularly rough time with puberty, and that's another thing that we should also clarify. Are we talking about post-puberty or pre-puberty? Because like, puberty can be something that happens before you even become a teenager. So like, where are we at That's
0: true. I mean, I guess, you know, teenage, by virtue of the word, is 13 to Nineteen. Oh, I and mean, puberty can happen, you know, at it's any. It's just so not cute, Mackenzie. It's just
3: like, <laughs> an, I mean, you know, my skin was greasy. Like you're awkward, and and I feel like kids are just getting more and more awkward these days too.
0: Like, oh yeah, are you guys scared of teenagers today? I'm horrified by them.
3: <laughs> so they, I've tried to engage people on this fact before, and I seem to be the only like misanthropic one about this point. You're being terrorized in your workplace. I'm being terrorized <laughs> in my workplace by these teenagers that congregate in huge numbers in our lobby and um, drop in very indecent photos into our like phones like she keeps on getting dick pics
0: they airdrop dick pics they, they, airdrop, airdrop, they airdrop dick, dick, dick pics teenagers <laughs>
2: are terrified they're, they're actually are. but can I just say that you have to cut them some slack I mean obviously when I got airdropped dick pics I was like super mad Mira and I were having lunch and I was actually like a crazy but I saw like a bunch of teenagers giggling and like a crazy person I was just like running around <laughs> no. saying that no, no who sent me this picture I know it's you get no, off my look, lawn you she looked absolutely <laughs> unhinged there is, yeah I was like who is <laughs> you know I was like they're the worst like teenagers like cancel teenagers like like ban teenagers but that's the hot take you (laughs) know like I think about like at the same time you know once I had some time to think it over I you know like I kind of like think about how people talk about millennials about how entitled we are and how we're a generation that's ungrateful and we have it easy but that's Pretty much not true. Like there are many studies that show that millennials like face the worst financial future since the great since the Great Depression. Exactly. Yeah. Like we the the basic necessities, which is like healthcare, education, and housing, we're deprived of that. But
0: teenagers aren't millennials.
2: No, they're not, oh, yeah, but they have it even worse. Ah, okay. You know, you think or so? iGen. Some people call it the new word for te- teenagers is the iGens. I forgot the name of the right, psychiatrist. because they came of age in a smartphone. Exactly. Reality. Oh, they so have scary. no recollection mm-hmm. before the internet. Mm-hmm. Do you guys remember before the re- internet? Of course. Yeah. I, I do, had to do. look up things in an encyclopedia. <laughs> I remember and, that.
0: And because my parents like got it at a yard sale, we were missing certain volumes. Oh my God. So God forbid that I needed to reference anything H through J, it didn't exist.
3: Everything you know? just seems like it was happening at a slower
0: rate. You know, it's we like, are. You guys, we're so old right now. We're so old. We're such <laughs> um, cantankerous old people. I reject that statement, McKenzie. <laughs> <She's>, yeah, <laughs> I know. Wait, how many years of out of hoop. how many years out of teenagehood are you, if you don't mind my asking?
3: No, no, I don't mind at all. So I'm 24, so you need to be going in 25, like next month, basically. Okay, so this
0: is my question: Is that yeah. you actually feel somewhat close to teenagehood, but you oh. are still terrified of them? Yeah, absolutely. Can you no longer remember what it's like to have that unbridled? Spirit. <laughs> you
3: know, here's another thing that it, it, I think it's specific to my circumstance. Like, I, I went to boarding school. And my teenage experience as a result was very um, restricted. Like, you know, I was constantly being monitored as to where I was. Like, there wasn't really much room to do any of that, like, rebellious stuff that I feel like is really a hallmark of, like, teenagehood. Um, at least, like, teenagehood and, like, the American understanding of it. Yeah, you missed out. Like, I missed stealing out, traffic cones. You know, like, and you know. I couldn't, you know, there was no weed smoking. I used to get drug tested once a month. Wow. Oh, no, really. So, you know, I had a very peculiar kind of situation. That said, I do not... You know, they can't make any decisions for themselves. Everyone is constantly making choices for teenagers, and I hated that, and I still hate that to this day. I cannot stand, like, the idea, the idea of relinquishing
2: my autonomy at this point is so, like, repe- I, can, I couldn't. And, I don't and, know. I well, think that teenagers, like, if we had it this bad, you know, I feel like teenagers are probably gonna have it worse. But that's and I feel that, like their future is very much, like, going to be even more messed up mm. than our future. I mean, I think that's a hallmark of
0: being a teenager, right? Is like yearning for more freedom, but you're still caught in this in-between place. And one of the really interesting things about Mount Wolf's film Teenage is he talks about how being a teenager is actually a social construct Mm -hmm. that is relatively new. And that in maybe our parents, well, probably our grandparents' generation, that you were a kid, and then you were an adult. Mm-hmm. And that in many cultures, there's actually a ceremony that marks the passage from mm-hmm. childhood into adulthood. And also, you know, you're getting married and having kids much younger. And that as we became wealthier in the Western world, that we decided that there would be this in-between roomspringa where people got to like <laughs> figure themselves out before they were adults. So. I don't know. Do you? What do you think about, like, your, your grandparents' generation? Do you think that they have a different notion of what it means to be a teenager? I
2: mean, I think, like, they don't have the luxury of time, in the true sense of the word, because there was a war, you know? And when I say that, you know, I was born during a war, so I guess in the context of Iran, I'm considered as a baby boomer, mm-hmm. I guess, oh, that's because funny. I was born <laughs> during the war, <laughs> and I grew up after, like, I remember when rockets were falling and my mother had to take me to bomb shelters to keep me safe and when the war finished in the 1950s i feel like because of the because people had the luxury of time and this this notion of safety and security i feel like that's when like this idea of okay you don't need to be an adult now because we don't need you to go fight for us you know which is you know i remember in iran there were literally teenagers Given grenades and fighting against Iraq in the Iran Iraq war. Also, I wonder the scarier part is, I wonder if capitalism had a role in this, in creating this. This basically this class of people, you know, yeah. like like teenagers, if just to basically for consumerism purposes, yeah. if sure, because they're a sure. demographic with serious buying power. Oh yeah, yeah.
0: gotta have the jeans. Yeah, and all like the tech gadgets. I don't right. know. Right. Yeah, that's that sounds a really so good, out of touch. <laughs> That's a really good point. What you were saying about how like we put kids uh, to work or we make them fight when we need to, and a lot of the emergence of this idea of teenagehood was when child labor laws were enacted mm-hmm. and we're like okay right. so there's a difference between children and adults and kids shouldn't be working mm-hmm. but then there's this like in between period i don't know do you, what what about your grandparents or your parents do, is their notion yeah. of teenagehood different than ours i had
3: like a great grandmother who was betrothed to a husband at the age of 12 and that's not and then started having kids at 16 and this was in the
0: 1920s yeah my grandfather got married at 8 yeah that's what? freaking yeah. crazy. <laughs> yeah, How old was your grandmother? Uh, this was his first wife, and she was an older woman. She no. Was 12, but they didn't start living <laughs> together until he was 12 and she was 16. So that's right. totally <laughs> normal. normal. Certainly. JK, really disturbing. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, yeah, when you're having kids at 16, like... Your, your conception of teenagehood maybe doesn't exist or it's right. just you're an adult. Right. They, and you don't even have the
2: language to t- like identify like this period in your life. It just doesn't even exist yet. So there's uh, all these studies that are actually saying that adolescence should be extended to the age 25 because, first of all, that's when the brain stops actually growing. Um, like there's there's this like group of like experts in Australia who are leading the study and they're saying that actually that's when we should consider adolescence to end. I oh mean,
0: that's true. I mean, in right. conclusion, teenagers literally have brains that are not fully formed. Basically, yes, we're terrified of
3: yeah. them. They're uh, also terrible conversationalists.
0: <laughs> Are they though? They are. They're terrible. I I want to do do an episode with just like Mira giving us top 10 reasons (laughs) teenagers are canceled. Stay tuned for that next time, folks. I know. I think we should like cut them some slack. I don't know. They're dealing with
2: a lot. They're they're dealing with like living in the social media age. You know, they have to be constantly plugged in. Like, same now though. Like, they have no like off switch. They're born without an off switch. We had that
0: luxury.
2: (laughs) All right, Mira, Shireen, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having us.
0: And that is the show for today. If you liked what you heard, and we hope that you did, the best way to show it is to review 112BK on iTunes. And also please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time. 112BK well, is hosted by me, Mackenzie Fagan. It is series produced by Ross Tuttle, also produced by Fred Brown, Shereen Bargi, Isabel Alcantara, Naeem Van, and Emily Bogosian. It is recorded in studio by Clinton Filson Jr., Eric Hagaseg, and Antonio M. Rosario. It is post produced by Alexander Pointzolo, edited by Mira Al Rahim, and executive produced by Jonathan Leaf, Sasha Mathias, and Aziz Aisham.